Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr., and this is the first of a special three-episode run hosted by Reverend Martha Tatarnik. This first episode features Amy Frickholm. Amy is a senior editor at the Christian Century Magazine. Her most recent book is Wild Woman, A Footnote, The Desert, and My Quest for an Elusive Saint. She hosts the In Search of podcast and can be found at amyfrickholm.com. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I am your host this week, Martha Tatarnik, and today I am joined by Dr. Amy Frickholm for a conversation about journalism, podcasting, and how these various media platforms can serve the church. Welcome, Amy. It is so great to have you on the Future Christian Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Martha. Okay, well, um, what what would you like to share about yourself and uh, just kind of the the Cole's notes of your faith journey to this point? Yeah, so I um, I grew up in South Dakota, um, in Sioux Falls, which is a kind of middle sized city on the far east of that state. And um, my dad was a Presbyterian minister. Okay, and he also was a professor of uh, Greek and New Testament at a small Baptist college. And so as the years went by, I eventually became a Baptist uh, because there was a he became a seminary professor in, in the North American Baptist Seminary. And that um, required the family to go to this Baptist church, which, to be honest, my parents were not very happy there. <laughs> uh, but for whatever weird reason, I just loved it. Um, I think the boys were cuter or something, or I don't know, but whatever it was, it just worked for me. That's a good draw, I guess. (laughs) It worked for me in those days. It was just like, oh, you know. And and so I um I spent my my adolescent years in a pretty conservative evangelical environment. I'm not sure I had either of those words to describe my own uh, perceptions of things or or what I was doing there, but I think that they were pretty accurate. And then I went to a Lutheran college. I went to St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. I didn't really know what a Lutheran was. Um, (laughs) And as we were driving to the college, my dad said, so, you know, they have this thing. It's called liturgy. And I think you're really going to like it. And uh, so that was my introduction to Lutheranism. So I, I spent four years hanging out with the Lutherans and the Quakers in Northfield, Minnesota, and, and was then, your dad right? Did you like this thing called liturgy? I did like it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I didn't understand, you know, really what everyone was doing and why it mattered to them so much, but it was so beautiful. Mm. And so I just started to appreciate the the beauty and the ritual. Um, and then that was contrasted with my attraction to the Quakers, where which were also very beautiful, but sort of the opposite. So I sort of held both of those things through college and then I just went into, I think, what's pretty common in our culture, but just a very long desert period where 
I really didn't see very much in religion that I I wanted for myself. I think I was sort of purifying a lot of the things that had been going on there, maybe a mm-hmm. lot of self-righteousness, for example, um, that just needed to go but had to take kind of a long period to exit. So then um, I uh, I moved to the mountains of Colorado, and I planned to stay only one year. And I just kind of have this weird thing, which is anywhere I've lived – I've always tried to figure out where they're serving free food, and then I go and I attach myself to that place. Is that right? And okay. so, yeah, that's kind of like my my most foundational spiritual practice is like free food. And so uh, there was this little place called St. George Episcopal Church, and I um, walked over one day and started cooking the community meal. And um I've been cooking the community meal there ever since. So this is 23 years. And you said um, that you just uh, was, you were just cooking that meal right before coming on the podcast. Right? Yeah, I just did it right before coming on the show. I, yep, I just did it. Um, so that was, you know, that was a long time ago, well, 23 years ago. And I wasn't really, again, interested in church. And I wasn't really sure that I wanted to know very much of about what was going on behind those, you know, glass doors or whatever. But then um, my parents came for uh, Christmas, my first year in uh, Leadville, and I figured they'd probably want to go to church somewhere. And so I thought I'd better check out the this church that I'd been cooking the meal at and uh, just see if, you know, maybe that would be a good place for us to go on Christmas Eve. So I went and I sat in the back and there were four total people in the church that day. I thought I would sit in the back, but I mean, when there's only four people, it's (laughs) kind of hard. You're a bit exposed. Yeah, I've been exposed. So I walked in and uh, the pastor said, well, um, we're small. And I was like, okay, great. I think two of the people who were there were named Bill. (laughs) <laughs> and that's just how weird it was. So I sat there and we did morning prayer and I just started to weep. Wow. And that continued for quite some time where I would show up for prayer and I would weep. And mm-hmm. I just realized how hungry I was, how how long that how long that desert had been and mm-hmm. how very little spiritual nourishment there had been for me over those years. And so I um, I started to attend this church. I didn't think I wanted to become an Episcopalian. That whole thing just seemed very kind of freakish to me, the way people join churches and like, do we really have to do that? Can I just show up for the rest of my life and, you know, I don't have to sign some paper or I don't know. I was very, I, I was very anxious about that. But the pastor who was becoming my very, one of my very closest friends, um, asked me if I'd serve on the leadership committee. And it became a little bit weird to like serve on the leadership committee at this very tiny church, but also not be an Episcopalian. I see. Yeah. So at some point I was like, okay, sure, let's let's do that. What is that thing you guys do? And so we so I went through confirmation and um became an Episcopalian and I've been one ever since. Um it's a bit random, but uh that's kind of how it worked for me was just realizing that I needed a place where I could be in relationship with something bigger than myself, uh, transcendence. And what really my faith then became formed around those two tables, the um, community meal table and the uh, communion table. Mm-hmm. And those became the two centers of my faith. And I really can't think about faith or Christianity or make any sense of what I'm doing without those two locations. Yeah, I think that uh, 
that's very similar to how I feel and maybe also connected to like the household table too. But, um, Mm -hmm. but those, those are kind of the central locations of faith for me too. And when you're blessed to be in a church where that connection is more explicit, it's a pretty great thing indeed, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We would not exist. I mean, St. George Episcopal Church would not exist without those two tables. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I'm also at a St. George's uh, Anglican Church, mm-hmm. and we also have a very extensive feeding program. So I'm enjoying this connection that we have. <laughs> I remember one time telling an Orthodox uh, priest that I, I think he was at a, he was at St. George Monastery, and I told him that you know that I was from St. George Episcopal Church, and he said, "Oh, St. George, very powerful, mm-hmm. very powerful." Yeah. So yeah, I guess I, that's my experience too. Um, okay, so we are going to talk in a moment about uh, your role with the Christian Century, but how does that work as a writer and an editor? How does that link into your faith journey? Yeah, so I've always been just one of those people that's pretty obsessed with religion, even in periods when I've not been very religious myself. I just have, uh, I think one of my professors in graduate school just called it like a tuning. Like I just have an ear for religion Mm -hmm. and I'm just really interested in how people express themselves religiously and and what that means to them. And I'm fascinated by belief. And um, so when I was in graduate school, I, um, I, I studied readers of the left behind series. So that was my first, um, my first academic project was to study religious reading in relation to this kind of very popular novels that were, were everywhere yeah, at that yeah. time when I was in graduate school. Everybody was reading them. And so I um, so I designed a kind of ethnographic project to ask people about their relationship to um, these novels and how they how they use them to construct truth or if they use them to construct truth, what was fiction for them, what was truth. How do those things, how do those categories work in their lives? And um, and so, you know, that was a very, it, it was really talking to people in it pretty deeply about their faith mm-hmm. and about their way of of constructing religion, even though I I didn't consider myself religious at the time. And I also didn't um have very very warm feelings about the kind of religion that they that they practiced or that they espoused, our conversations were really deep and often really moving. Mm-hmm. And I think they those conversations kind of moved me as well, so that I was ready for St. George Episcopal Church when I when it in, when it encountered me, when I encountered <laughs> it. Um and so then I wrote a book about that. I wrote a book called Rapture Culture. And um the Christian Century reviewed it. And so um and they did such a good job. You know, they it was it was this really in-depth review. It was written by Jason Biasi. Uh, it really seemed to grasp what I was doing at a level that no other reviewer had done. Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote to Jason. I just said, Wow, I that review was really beautiful and and really seemed to get at what I wanted to wanted people to understand from this book. And um at that point he invited me to start writing for the Christian Century. So I I started trying to think, well, like, what would I what I write about, what would be what would be meaningful or interesting. So I started a little project where I interviewed people about because interviewing was seemed to be kind of that was my sweet spot. And so I interviewed people about um, people who had converted from uh, Protestantism 
to orthodoxy. And I kind of traveled around the state of Colorado looking for those people and, and giving and doing kind of in-depth interviews. And I wrote that up for the Christian Century. And that was the first story that I did for them. And um, I found that I just really enjoyed that process, that process of, of getting to know people, asking questions, probing that, and then, but not spending years on it, just sort right. of compiling it and, and putting it out there in the world. I found that that really worked for me as a as a practice, as a writing practice. And so I started writing fairly regularly for the magazine and eventually was hired and um, eventually became an editor there, um, really enjoying that process of of condensing, um, compiling and and just really thinking about the 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 core of things. how do how do how do you express what really needs to be expressed yeah. and then get that to the audience? So, okay, if I'm understanding right, like this was kind of also a parallel track where you kind of started in like a not particularly connected as a person of faith, and then the faith journey kind of unfolded as you were doing these feeding ministries and beginning to write for the Christian Century. Is that right? I think that's a good way of yeah, I think those things were unfolding together. I remember when I was hired at the Christian Century, um, you know, I came out of Duke University, but not the religion department. I started in the religion department at Duke University, but pretty quickly I moved over to the literature program, which is a pretty radical program. It's rooted in Marxist thought. It's, hmm. um, you know, Fred Jameson is kind of the, the it was at one point the hotspot of postmodernism and um and I remember when I was hired at the Christian Century, David Heim, who was the editor at the time, said, now, I just want you to understand that we are not interested in becoming post-Christian. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that was, a vi- that was a viable, you know, it was a valuable thing for him to say to me. And I think he was, you know, perceiving me in some ways correctly that I, I wasn't sure how I was going to fit into this Christian part of the Christian century, um, but that I knew I had an ear for religion. I knew I had an ear for religious stories. And um, I think he he wanted to encourage me in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it's probably pretty interesting to look at it all in the rearview mirror. And it, it looks like um, God had a pretty di- like clear map for your life. But probably didn't exactly feel like it didn't feel like that at all. No, it just felt like random stuff like I need to be in this weird church and I need to be eating this food and I need to be connecting to these people and then this other thing started to unfold, you know, and um and then they began to like you said grow together. That took a very long time honestly for my voice that I was using for the Christian Century to claim a Christian voice. That that was a you know, that was a eight-year process, something like that. I mean, a very, it was a long process. Yeah, I mean, that's an encouragement, I think, to people on their faith <laughs> journey to realize, like, it's not always uh, the blink of an eye sort of um, Damascus moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> not for me. God has a variety of timelines, I think. <laughs> um, so over the course of those 23 years of uh, of starting um, that feeding program at St. George. Have you seen a shift in what it meant to be a Christian in the past and what it means to be a Christian now? For myself? Well, or maybe just or more— in the church. Yeah, maybe just more general I mean, patterns. St. George is such a weird animal that I have—I mean, I, 
I don't, and, and it is the only church, you know, that I've ever really been deeply a part of. Mm. And I feel like it's such a unicorn out there in the world. I have no idea um, if it maps at all <laughs> onto anything that anybody else is doing. Uh, but I think we have become very comfortable with being a small, committed group of people connected to this larger work. And so we have probably 250 volunteers that work with our food, that with the, do the food work that we do. We call it sharing food. We have probably 250 volunteers that share food with us. We probably have, uh, we, we share food with probably 400 people, 450 people a week, something like that. And one shift that we've made over time is that we consider every single one of those people to be a participant, a full participant in our community. Mm. So we have we no longer think about, oh, the people who are coming to church on Sunday, those are the real yeah. members and participants in the community. And then all these other people, this 400 people, those are like the interlopers or the pretend, whatever. We've just given up that distinction altogether. Every single one of those people, whether they come to church on Sunday, whether they're just there for one meal a week, whether they come by and grab a bag of food, whether they come by and unload a truck and move on their way, every single one of those people is a full-fledged member of our community. And um, and and keeping that mentality, you know, then uh, it shifts us from this idea that like, oh, these, you know, we've got to find more people who want to make spend an hour every Sunday sitting in these pews and doing this ancient rite. Mm -hmm. There are those people. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people. But that's not that's not the the end all be all of our existence as an organization. That's just this one weird thing that these these small group of 10 people want to do. It's not that weird. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, Christianity, but 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 I think in this community, Leadville's a very Leadville is at 10,200 feet. It's a mountain town. The um, St. George has never, not since the 1930s, I think, has been bigger than 25 wow, okay. members. It's been closed so many times over the 20th century that it's just a sort of a miracle that the building exists and that there are people in it. Uh, so I think because of that, it's always kind of had this outpost feel, this sort of, you know, out on the margins of the culture doing sort of strange things and so um when i know we've really cultivated that over the last 20 years yeah. you know we're 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 different we're unusual and we um and we really put the food work at the center of all that we do yeah i i mean i think we sort of try to break down that charity model here in our feeding programs as well. And I think it transforms how you think about uh, the church. But I think it's also becoming a more recognized, that partnership model is becoming more recognized in the charitable sector as well, that, mm -hmm. you know, rather than thinking about uh, sort of the delivery of services to people who need them, um, that there is kind of more of a sense of building up community across people in yeah. different circumstances. And partnership. Partnership. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. We think we think of ourselves as having something to, to both to teach or challenge the church and something to teach or challenge the nonprofit sector. Like yeah. we live we live in that middle space between the two, but we we feel that we have something to offer to both and to challenge both because the church part of us really allows us to say we're feeding 
every single person who walks through this door, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And we're not qualifying them. We are not asking them any questions. We are not trying to, you know, do anything with their lives. We are just simply feeding everyone who walks through the door. And that comes out of our faith. That comes out of our grounded sense that God is in each single person who walks in this Mm -hmm. door and that we are in search of the God in them. And that if we come in with our agenda and our certainty and our and our questions and we know it all or whatever, we're never gonna, we're never gonna see that. We're never gonna find that image of Christ in that person. So that comes directly. And we've had, you know, that's really been an interesting challenge in these last few years as COVID has really um put people's attention on food insecurity so that that suddenly we're not doing this in the dark anymore. Mm-hmm. The county's interested in what we're doing and the city's interested in what we're doing. But they often have a very different set of demands that they really want to place on the people who come to the meals. So we we uh have had to really get clear about nope. It's every single person, and it's no matter what, and it's for it's as long as we have food to share, we are sharing it. Period. End of story. And then on the nonprofit side, or um, you know, we feel like we are a challenge to the church in the sense that we do have this open door, this idea that we are all one. That if you come and get a bag of food, you're one with us. If you come and um and, and you know and you sweep out the the foyer on on food pantry day, you're one of us. And so I feel like that's a challenge, you know, to the church side to kind of stop thinking in numbers and start thinking in human human interaction and love and connection. Yeah, I I love that twofold challenge. And uh, I would also add the word witness. Like, I think it's a witness mm-hmm. to, to both of those sectors. So we've uh, we've touched on um, your writing as a, a piece of that faith journey and uh, roadmap that, of your life. Um, let's spend some time talking about the Christian Century. As we already mentioned, you are a senior editor at the Christian Century. Can you just flesh out for us a little bit uh, who reads the Christian Century? What does yeah, your readership the look Century. like? So the Christian centuries are also a very strange beast out there in the in the landscape of uh, of North American Christianity. So it was founded in the late 19th century. I think the century that they are referring to is the 20th century. So that's always been a bit of cumbersome um, name, which I think has been challenged by staff and board members and since maybe 1960, 1960. You know, the first challenge to the name of like, could we change this name? Probably came around then. Um, and we've continued to to wrestle with it and struggle with it because it it sounds, you know, triumphalist in a way. Like, when was this Christian century? Right. Uh, and and you know, and, and what are the hopes for it in the future, you know? So, but anyway, um, it was founded as an ecumenical um journal so that the seven seven sister churches of Protestantism, which we don't really talk about anymore, but and I if you if you put a, you know, if you challenged me, I'm not sure I could come up with all what, seven, seven of them. But, but there were seven, and I'm sure listeners know what those seven were. But they were Methodists, Presbyterians, um, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, and one other. And I'm sorry I missed you, whoever you are. You're very important. Methodists? And Methodist? I got the Methodists. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Should have written those down ahead of time. Anyway. Those seven churches founded this journal together in the sense that they really wanted it to be independent. They didn't want it to belong to any one of them. 
and the vo- to have the voice be independent. It was a socially progressive magazine. It was rooted in the social gospel movement of the late 19th and early 20th century. And um, and so it's very interesting to be working for a magazine that is, you know, over 100 years old. And whenever anything comes up, you can always ask, like, well, what were we thinking 100 years ago about this? And that's both, you know, good and bad. Sometimes it's terrifying. Um and you can also learn a lot from the mistakes of the past, learn a lot from the way that previous editors made sense of their culture and their mm-hmm. century and so on. Um, and these days, it's read it's read by a very broad and diverse audience, but primarily they are clergy or religious leaders. Okay. So it really – it's not a – it's not a leadership journal per se. It's a, It sees itself as being a much um, broader project beyond just clergy and would appeal to, you know, interested lay people. But it exists at this, at this um, juncture between the church and the academy. So in some ways, it's, it's very academic in nature. And it assumes a reader who's pretty well educated. Right. And on the other side, it's very church oriented and it assumes a leader who's pretty interested in the dynamics of everyday life in the church. So um it 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 straddles those two worlds. And we do quite we don't do anything that would be, you know, overtly academic in nature, but we're always trying to ask a critical question that would that an that a you know a leader who's been trained in the academy would find to be an interesting and profound question. We're we're always probing for that. We want our readers to be um, awakened by what they read in the magazine, to be enlivened by it, to have their questions, and never to read anything that they're like, I mean, of course, everybody has different opinions about what goes in there, but but it should never be dumb. You know? Yeah, yeah. It should, should always give you something to think about. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's exactly why I invited you to be on the the Future Christian Podcast with me. Um, I subscribe to Christian Century and I write for Christian Century on occasion. And um, this is a podcast about the church and how it's structured and led and um, how we encourage and equip church leaders. And uh, as I was thinking through who I wanted to talk to about about that, I thought it would be really interesting to hear from your perspective what like what you try to um look for in terms of stories that mm. are going to challenge equip encourage church yeah. leaders like we we cast a very broad net for that we're always looking for something that that would probably surprise you to find in our pages you know something that's just like whoa what like so for example in the most in the most recent issue coming up we have a piece on this um haiku priest poet from he died i can't remember when he died but he's you know he's several decades ago he died his name is Raymond Rosalie and when we read his haiku and someone sent us this piece about his haiku we were all so blown away by how beautiful it was and how strange. And he he kind of used the form of haiku to talk about Christian theology mm-hmm. and to um to ponder it and to give people kind of startling images in relation to it. And so we were we were just absolutely blown away by it. Now, could we have predicted that we would publish a piece about a haiku poet who died several years ago? Um and uh 
was also a priest? Probably not. We wouldn't have put that on a calendar, you know, like, oh, okay, let's go find the haiku poet priest article. <laughs> um, but we, but that's what is fun about the work is that we're always looking for those little oddities that, um, that really, when you, when you encounter them, they're so surprising and enlivening. We just did a piece on, I mean, I'm obviously interested in the literature end of things. So probably all my examples are going to be obscure literary um, examples, but uh, we just did a beautiful piece on Denise Levertov and how, and and how she used poetry to explore the possibility of faith and what that meant for her, and um, and that was a beautiful piece. Another really really important part of what we do are books. Right, people love to read the Christian Century to find books, and they should because we. Really, um, there are so few places these days that do the kinds of extensive book reviews and the kind of extensive book reading that we do um, to put out the magazine. So I think that's another really important part of what we do that seems sort of weird and like, you know, who who in the 21st century would be like, yeah, books, that's the thing. <laughs> but for the Christian century, it is. People who read the Christian century love books. Editors love books. We spend a lot of time thinking about books. We spend a lot of time talking about books and reviewing them and all of those things. And it's just an enormous part of what we do. And we and you know, I think it's it's really gratifying to be in a place that loves books so much. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that uh that I speak for all the majority of the the readers of Christian Century and saying that. As a church leader, you want to have your critical thinking and your imaginative thinking stimulated on a regular basis in order to do what we do. So I think that's an interesting angle um, into some of the stories that you look for. It's not sort of all about, uh, okay, we'll follow these 10 uh, steps for, you know, getting more people in your pews or whatever like that's right you're right. not you're not kind of looking for the technical stories around congregational development per se like right if somebody had a really interesting idea about how to approach that that would really you know shock readers or, or surprise them i think we would absolutely do it we're not opposed but it's hard to find those things, right? Because some ways you and I could sit down here and I'm not even a pastor and I could sit down and come up with the 10 yeah. whatevers. I just, it's just not, it, it just doesn't really fill people with hope or enliven them or even encourage them. It just kind of like, oh, okay, there's a to-do list, right? Like, and then you just say, oh, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? So we think of ourselves, I mean, um, we think of ourselves as kind of opening up the landscape of this kind of Christian leadership, Christian living. Mm -hmm. um, I already said the word landscape. Okay. So anyway, opening that landscape up and then, um, and then just wandering around in it and, and wondering about things. And then somebody, the, the Christian Century won uh, Associated Church Press Award some years ago for being the best, um, the best magazine in the church world. And um, and we've won several of those, so that isn't about the award, but this is about the fact that one of the judges said, the thing I most love about the Christian century is that you want to spend time with it. Hmm. She said, you should just, what you should do to read the Christian century is sit down, pour yourself a glass of wine, and just enjoy it. <laughs> and I think that to me, that really spoke to what it is we're trying to do. It should, you should be able to really enjoy it. 
and savor it and not um, get stuck in your head and not uh, add a whole bunch of things to your to-do list. Usually I add books that I want to read to my list when I read The Christian Century. But um, but yeah, it's that pleasure. It, it, right now, especially, we've just gone through a major um, re... What's that called? Can't think of the word. It's been, it's been a long day. Um, we just remade the magazine. We redesigned. Redesigned. We just redesigned the magazine. Yeah. And uh, and it's gorgeous. It's got gorgeous art. We increased our art budget. It's got beautiful illustrations, original illustrations, lots of original art in there. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think that that was our intention, was to really double down on print, really double down on beauty. Mm-hmm. and. And give and just feed pastors' souls, you know, just feed them with good stuff. There's lots of poetry in the magazine. Um, we're often just trying to give give the pastor a moment of richness that I think really feeds their work. Well, that's kind of another table in your life then, another place of feeding and and gathering. Yeah. I just wrote down a bunch of the words that you said because uh, I think they're great. Hope, joy, encouragement, wonder, enliven, savor, beauty. I mean, what a a great mandate. That's what we're after. That's awesome. That's what we're after. Absolutely. So I would say that like with the online aspect of, uh, of publication these days that uh, you you're able to put together some different metrics around what generates mm-hmm. the uh, yep. the most eyeballs the most engagement the most conversation I know that at least uh, in some past years that you've published a list at the end of the year of like most yeah, read yeah. articles um, what what do you see? being the topics that generate the most conversation and engagement. I mean, absolutely. Our readers are hungry for theology Mm. and almost anything we, um, we did a piece on atonement. Yeah. And what did, well, I wrote one piece yeah. about atonement a few years ago, but I think you have one. That's what I'm thinking. That's I was more like, recent. I think maybe it was your piece. <laughs> more, it might have been your piece on atonement, but it would be a good example. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, that was Martha's piece. <laughs> um, that's a good example of the kind of stuff our readers are hungry for, and that they pass around, and that they talk about, and that they exchange. I mean, you know, how strange is that? But when you look at the, you look at the list of. Um, you know, the most read articles in the Christian century from the past year, they're all theology related. They are um, uh, church related, church practice or th- or that kind of thing. Pastoral care is a really important subject to a lot of our readers. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that get a lot of intention or engagement. Now, because we've really put our, our money on print and we've really doubled down on print, we don't necessarily know what is most engaging to our readers. That in the analytics that we get on the the kind of data analytics that we run for um, social media don't necessarily tell us everything we want to know mm-hmm. about sort of how readers read the magazine. But, you know, it's it does give us something and it tells us that our readers are very interested in theology and they're very interested in church. And that's probably no surprise. Yeah. Have you seen a shift at all in the kinds of topics that you cover or, you know, what people are talking about the most? Like, has that uh, mm, did it change over the question. course of the pandemic? Do you see um, 
Gosh, good question. Particular like pockets of anxiety around things, like what? Uh... I know that we have we have as an organization in the past five years really, really, really put um, a lot of emphasis on finding more diverse writers mm-hmm. for the magazine, and also interrogating and understanding how the century has dealt with race and um, race in our culture and race race in society, and so. I think that there has been a shift and readers are very interested in that. And so are our writers. So we tend to get a lot of articles submitted about race and racial dynamics um, and about uh, grappling with racial structures and uh, structural racism, racism in our society and so on. We're very attentive to that. And we really want to grow as an organization in our understanding and and help our readers also to navigate. Um, and I, I think that's new. I think that's, yeah. it's not new in American culture, but it's new for a focus or an emphasis on behalf of the magazine to really help our readers navigate some new landscapes culturally. And, and I think our readers are very engaged um, with those kinds of questions. They're very interested. Um, and so we saw, in, of course, during the pandemic, we saw a huge increase in the need for articles about worship, articles about engagement, articles about how do we how do we navigate this pandemic together? Like there was a lot of need for that. And with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of need for grappling with this with these questions at a social level. Who are we? What are we doing together? How do we live? How do we create the society that we want to live in? And that kind of thing. So the the Christian century, I, I usually mention this, and I, sh- I would have mentioned it earlier in my, in my intro to the magazine, but it was the place where Martin Luther King published Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Oh my gosh. Um, it was the first, the first place that he used the pages of the Christian century to get that message out. Hmm. And um, and that and that makes a lot of sense because it really was a place where social justice issues were being addressed and a place where readers needed to be pushed. And I think that that is still, that's still very much a case, the case. And we're still very much interested in in doing those two things. Yeah, that is quite a legacy to have that as part of the history of your magazine. And, and at the same time... Yeah, it really challenges you to be like, okay, live up to that. Yeah, live, like it sets a pretty high bar. Um and and also, I mean, what you sort of said about the uh, the conversations that have been unfolding, particularly in the last couple of years around racial justice and the pandemic, that very much tracks with my experience of how the church conversations have changed as well. So obviously, the Christian century is very tuned into what people are talking about and what they need, which is. And I think another Important. huge shift in emphasis for us has been um, ecological yeah, and really being able to find, I mean, I remember talking about this at the Christian Century, you know, 15 or 15 years ago, but not really knowing or being able to action it, you know, to really, to really create a breakthrough in the conversation. We really would get stuck a lot of times with, well, I mean, everybody knows the climate is changing. Everybody knows that there are these people who don't think the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard to find out where the edge was in that conversation. And I remember doing an interview with this amazing woman, Catherine Hayhoe, who has really made it her life's work mm-hmm. to talk with climate deniers about um, their um, about their climate denial. 
And, um, and and then that was fascinating. So we began to find little inroads, ways to talk about. And it's interesting when you start building those kinds of conversations, they grow. You know, you feed the soil, you look for writers, you ask questions, and then, you know, you begin to see how the conversation develops or grows. And I think that, you know, the environmental conversation is another one that we've cultivated in recent years and has grown. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Now, we have uh, the connection around Christian Century, and that was my primary reason for reaching out to you for today's conversation. But you are also a podcast host, and your second season of episodes came out over the course of the last year. and mm -hmm, 2023. 2023. Yep. And uh, that season was focused on the topic in search of truth. Um, you have a, a third season in the works. Is that right? Yeah, just I haven't, I mean, I haven't actually done an interview yet, but I, I've started to develop and the ideas and started to send some emails and we'll see. Okay. All right. So it's not, uh, the, the episodes aren't quite in the hopper yet. No, my plan is to launch the third season of In Search Of on February 15th. I think that's the, I think Ash Wednesday, which I've launched each season of the podcast on Ash Wednesday Oh, and then run it for eight weeks. So for me, it just kind of makes a, it's a good, I think it's a good Lenten theme because all of the podcasts are about searching. They're about people who are on a search. They're about, um, they're about weird sorts of finding. And, um, and so that's kind of the big, the big project as a whole is about, has been about searching. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds like a great Lenten journey and, uh, and focus. I, I really firmly believe that podcasting is such an asset to the life of Christian leadership these days, because I think we just need tons of honest conversation and we need mm -hmm. tons of space for engaging different voices and having people really sit down together and talk across difference and find common ground and, um, you know, take, take an idea and then unpack it in in a deeper way and and just keep the conversation going what what was your motivation for getting into podcasting as a as a, a yeah yeah part of a, what you do at I did Christian want century. I did want a new challenge I mean that's part of it you know I have been at the Christian Century for some time now and I I was interested in a new challenge and we really hadn't um we hadn't ventured in this direction as an organization. We had hosted a couple of podcasts that we don't get involved in the content at all, but we hadn't really ourselves uh, thought about podcasting. And so that was the first thing was just like, oh, this is an experiment. Let's see, what am I interested in? And I had just written this book called Wild Woman, which is about my search for Mary of Egypt, mm. who is a, a fifth century saint of the desert. And I had gone on this journey um, literal journey in search of her, looking for evidence of her in the landscape of um, Egypt, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. And so I kind of traced her life through the desert. And so I'd learned a lot and I'd met a lot of really amazing people. And I had, um, it, it just had been an incredible exploration, but also something that was really deep around searching itself, that searching was a profound spiritual practice. And that when you do it, uh, you may or may not find, but you certainly 
it's a very it's a, a deepening experience and i learned that that this is a quote from um rainer maria rilke but i learned that uh i am one who likes to search for things mm-hmm. And so, and I don't necessarily find them, but I really love to search for them. So that became the core of the ideas, um, is searching itself as an interesting um, thing to pay attention to. But, and that, and the first season was really delightful because I just, I sort of explored the idea of searching in that first season and also explored some of the fascinating things that I had learned from my time in the desert. So I, this great interview with this ethnobotanist who I was like, what do the desert saints eat in the desert? And so he talked to me about desert plants and he talked to me about water collection, talked to me about all kinds of things. And he also is just a super interesting guy. His name is Gary Nobhan and he's written dozens of books on plants and, um, the Sonoran Desert and uh, the deserts of the Middle East. And he's just, he's really, an ama- and food and like, oh, he's just an amazing guy. So that was the kind of thing I was exploring that first season. And then the second season, I just wanted a little bit of more of a target because this mm-hmm. felt kind of random. Um, and and so I decided that we would go on a search for truth. And I also felt like, you know, as a society, truth is becoming such a problematic area for us. Mm-hmm. Most of us, we're not sure if we believe that it exists, but we also are seeing more and more how desperately we need it and how if we if we say that it doesn't exist or your truth is different from my truth or whatever, we we can diverge as a society and, and divide and become um, impossible to, it becomes impossible for us to live with one another when we're carrying around um, these different ideas about truth. And so- I was fascinated by the question of truth, and I decided to explore it in different fields mm-hmm. and to see sort of what does truth look like in biblical studies? What does truth look like in physics? What does truth look like in um, in social justice? What is truth? And so I so those were sort of how I laid out the episodes. So each episode deals with truth in journalism, um, truth in interreligious dialogue. Mm. How do you how do you begin to address the question of truth in interreligious dialogue? So um, that is that was the second season. I really appreciate that naming of the search as being very integral to the life of faith. We have this beautiful prayer in uh, at, at the time of baptism. We pray for the the candidate being baptized to have an inquiring and discerning heart and the courage to yeah, will and to persevere and a spirit of joy and wonder in all of God's works. And um, I, I think you could easily slot the word search into that Absolutely. prayer and yep. and say like, yeah, this is this is baked into the baptismal life. Um, right. Yeah, it's absolutely integral to our our spiritual growth, to our development, to our relationship with God. If we're not if we're not in search of uh, a relationship, then you know I think we begin to sort of die inside. Yeah. And church practices don't always lead to that kind of inquiry or self inquiry or growth. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think I'm in search of both God and myself when I go on these journeys. Yeah, and I think it's integral to our relationship with one another and our life as the church, too, that we keep track of the fact that we're not done deals. We're not finished products. Like, God isn't finished with us yet. I And we, God. we can be sort of active agents in uh, in in making sure that we're on that, that journey of process with God. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just wanted to celebrate that a little bit, you know, and celebrate it in as many different ways as I could. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm intrigued by the the third season coming up and maybe we'll get a chance to talk again across podcasts. Oh, when, that'd be great. When that yeah, comes that out. That would be so fun. That would be a lot of fun. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few moments for some closing questions. And we are back for our closing questions. Now, Amy, uh, we always tell our guests this reminder, um, these closing questions, you can take as seriously or as not seriously as you want. So uh, the, the choice is up to you. If you were Pope for one day, what would that day look like? Well, obviously, there would be a lot of food and a <laughs> yeah. lot of some tables drink and there'd be lots of tables, lots of tables. And people would gather around them and for a day we would definitely give up um the we would definitely give up some of the arcane uh procedures let's call them that have that have uh, gathered around the eucharist and we would celebrate together i think the life of the the full life of being the body of christ so if i got to be pope for a day we would just let let the let it all go and break bread together and um and feast together but i definitely would try to but but since i have a whole day i would also try to address i think the clergy um crises that we are in i think that the pope would be a great place to start where um starting with you know unmarried priests mm -hmm. um i think i would just be done with that and would be just We'd be done with that. Now, of course, if there's a priest who doesn't want to get married, that's fine. You know, I'm not, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, forced on anyone. <laughs> Marriage is not that great. I wouldn't force it on anyone. But, um, but still, we would just let that go. That was a tradition, didn't work, created some real divisions and some real pain and real suffering in our societies. So we're done with it. Um, and uh, the same thing with, um, all the problems that we have with homosexuality and the priesthood and homosexual inclusion in our society, just let all that go. And since I got to be Pope for the day, we would just move to full inclusion all across the board and just be done with this conversation that has not served the purpose of love. And um, yeah, well, that's what I do. You had me at food. So yeah, uh, exactly. I'm on board with you <laughs> being Pope there. for the day. <laughs> Oh, great. And, we'll see if you can get anybody else on board with yeah, that idea. Yeah, I th I, the rest of the agenda sounds really good, too. <laughs> what theologian or historical Christian figure would you want to meet or bring back to life? Well, right now, I am 100% fascinated by this woman named Maria Skoptsova, who lived in the 20th century, and she was a Bolshevik um, during the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and then she became a refugee. She fled Russia during the Russian Revolution and ended up in Paris. And in Paris, she started these hospitality houses where it, they were pre predominantly for a women, uh, Russian refugee women at the time. So she just convinced the diocese to open up these houses. She convinced them to buy the houses and open them, and she would um, organize the women to be able to live there. And then every day she would go to the market and she would take all the stuff that 
the marketers were throwing away and she would bring those she would bring that back for and create lunch hmm. and she would invite all of the russian uh, emigre society so the thinkers and the poets and the philosophers they would all come and have lunch with the um, refugee women and they would sit around this big table and eat soup and there was a polish bread baker who was really into baking bread for this group so there would be bread and there would be soup. And she did that um, for for several years. And then when the Nazis took over Paris, she turned those hospitality houses into refugee houses for Jewish refugees. And um, she was arrested while she was doing that work and was executed by the Nazis. Um, but I'm really fascinated by her story and by the way that she used this kind of spontaneous hospitality mm -hmm. to address the questions of her day. She's also a beautiful poet. She wrote really stunning essays that were very challenging to the church of her moment. Um, and so it's that combination. Of course, it's a combination that I'm so fascinated by, but the combination of food and writing and then this kind of intellectual atmosphere that she cultivated in this all all are one at one table sort of thing that she just really draws my attention. I would love to sit down with her and just have some soup. She sounds like your kind of people. She sounds like my people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's pretty cool. <laughs> what will history remember from our current time and place? Uh, I'm not... Not very good on this question, I don't think, because when, you know, what is our current time and place? When does it start? When does it end? You know, what is the era we're living in? It's so hard to know. Um, but I think some of the things that strike me is that, you know, if we if we don't address the climate crisis, of course, history won't remember this time yeah. and this place. And um, so we'll either be remembered for getting it and figuring it out. Or we'll be remembered for failing to get it and to figure it out. Um, and we'll be remembered at regardless for how we responded, for how how we met the moment. And um, and there's just kind of no, no getting around that, you know. That's where we are and where our planet is going. And every day teaches us that again and again and again. Yeah, when you put it like that, it's pretty hard to argue against that. It's, that is true, for better or for worse. And I think, you know, that challenge, that's a, that's a real challenge to our churches, because I think I read a statistic, something like one in every four people in the United States has been impacted by a climate crisis, a climate-related crisis. One in four. So we think of ourselves as being, like, somehow we've kind of we're we've lucked out or whatever it's not fa it's facing us now it's not somebody else's problem so the churches are you know we're going to be called upon to respond mm -hmm. and you know we should probably be ready because it's gonna it's gonna hit us pretty hard yeah it is hitting us pretty hard you're right it is hitting us yeah yeah so that might lead right into this last question what are your hopes for the future of christianity i so i'm so ready for Christianity, and I can't speak about world Christianity, so I'm just going to speak about North American Christianity. But I'm very ready for North American Christianity to set down the idea of attraction, mm. that that this consumer-oriented relationship to the church, that we just seem to be so 
convinced by and addicted to. I'm just so ready for us to accept that Christianity is fundamentally a critique of society and that we're always going to be, if we're doing anything right, we're going to be outside of it. We're going to be outside of the culture. We're not going to be, you know, it. We're not going to be it, you know. if there was a moment and it was 1950 when all of a sudden every Christianity in North America exploded and everybody wanted to be a Christian and everybody went to a Christian church, that wasn't Christianity. Right. Christianity is Christianity is the critique of that for me, you know? And so I'm ready for us to accept that the Christianity of the future is small, mm-hmm. that it's poor, and that it is doing the work of feeding people, healing people, meeting them where they are. I'm just ready for that. I'm just ready for every church in America to just give up the, you know, give up the story and uh, and just go and, you know, sit down with some people and have some food and call it good. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty good bookend to our conversation. I feel like we started with tables and we're, we're ending with tables and it's it's been a good conversation in between. So thank you, Amy. Where can people find out more about you? And I, you did mention your most recent book, but if you can highlight that for us again and yeah. uh, and where to go. Absolutely. So um, all my books, you can find all my books at um, amyfricolm.com. And um, obviously they're available in any bookstore um, or online bookstore. And um and yeah, you could also find me at the Christian Century. And we'd, we'd love to see you there. And can you just tell us the title of your most recent book oh, again? Oh, my most recent book is called uh, Wild Woman. Uh, uh-oh, I'm going to come up with the... Let me try that again. My most recent book is called Wild Woman, uh, A Footnote, The Desert, and My Search for an Elusive Saint. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty good title to inspire us for some more searching. So thank you. Thank you so much for this time today. Thank you, Martha. Thanks so much for having me. It's delightful to get to know you a little bit. We always end with a word of peace. So the peace of God be with you, Amy. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.